we were last in the book of Revelation in our consideration of the uh, letters to the seven churches uh, way back in August, uh, 13th August to be specific, and we were looking at uh, the letter to the church in uh, Smyrna. So this morning we move to the third letter, and that is the letter to the church in Pergamum. Uh, I've divided uh, the messages from this portion uh, into two parts. We will look at the first part this morning, and God willing, after Youth Sunday, we will conclude with uh, part two. Uh, the first part, we'll be looking at uh, uh, the opening statement of the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of his self-designation and uh, uh, the words of uh, uh, commendation and condemnation uh, for the church. And then in the second part, we'll look at uh, uh, the uh, charge uh, that is given uh, to the church and the promise uh, that the Lord gives to them should they repent. And so those are the two parts, and this morning we'll be looking at part one. So beginning to read from verse 12 uh, to verse 17 of Revelation chapter 2, uh, verse 12 to 17. The Bible reads, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, Right. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice, practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers... I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let us pray. Our blessed God and our Father in heaven, after a long break, we now come back to look at the remaining letters that were written to the seven churches 
in the book of Revelation. Lord, as we consider what you had to say to the church in Pergamum, we pray that we may see ourselves in the light of the truths that we will find here. That where, Lord, we are not different from the church in Pergamum, uh, that the sermon unto repentance may be taken seriously, uh, that we too might receive and by, might be beneficiaries of the promises that are made to such as hear and act upon what they have heard. And so hold our hearts and our minds captive and allow, O oh God, that your word will sink ever so deeply into our hearts and there may it grow and produce a hundredfold fruitfulness and may we please you, the God to whom and from whom everything that is of blessedness to our hearts originates. And it is in the name of our dear Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. And so as we get back to uh, the letters to the seven churches, a reminder that so far we have considered the first letter written to Ephesus, uh, the church that lost its first love. The second letter was written to Smyrna, and we noted that this was a faithful church in the midst of a fiery trial, a fiery furnace. And as we come to the third church, that is uh, Pergamum, uh, we will see that this was a church that was weakened by compromise. It was a compromising church. And compromise, whether it be in the life of a believer, whether it be in the life of the church, is the undoing of our Christian testimony. The church had endured, at Pergamum that is, had endured much as a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And despite the onslaught of paganism, uh, in spite of idolatry and heathenism that was everywhere around them at every time, the believers in Pergamum did not deny or renounce their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They learned through personal experience that to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be identified with the Lord Jesus Christ, could mean death at the hands of the Roman Empire. It could mean suffering and paying the high price for that faith, for that resoluteness and determination to hold fast to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so they understood all too well that to be a Christian is not simply to live a life of ease without opposition without any pressure without any challenges without persecution to be a child of god is to expect that there will be those around you those among whom you live who will not be pleased with you with your lifestyle with your message and with your testimony and they would do anything within their power and means to persecute you and to show their hatred for you. And it was in the midst of all that that the church in Pergamum held fast to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is one area in which the Lord commends them Behold, or rather, I know that you have but... Sorry, I was reading from verse 8. It's supposed to be from uh, uh, verse 12, uh, verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. The name of the Lord Jesus Christ and what it means for you and in your life. To glorify Him, to honor Him, you have not departed from that. You have not renounced your faith. You have not brought ridicule and dishonor and disgrace to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was commendable if one realizes what exactly they were going through. The church in Pergamum, together with the church in Smyrna, are the only two churches to whom the Lord Jesus Christ does not say, I know your works. He does not say to them, I know your deeds, as some other versions say. Look at verse 9 to the church in Smyrna. I know your tribulation and your poverty. To the church in Pergamum, I know where you dwell. The rest of the seven churches, the Lord Jesus Christ says to them, I know your works. I know your deeds. So this is something different that we not hear uh, in Smyrna and we not here in the letter to the church in Pergamum. But interestingly, let us look closely at what the Lord Jesus Christ says concerning them and why he says those words we read of in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And then the words are repeated towards the end of verse 13. Concerning the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Does it mean that there are certain places 
There are certain cities, there are certain geographical locations where Satan has pitched his throne and has made his dwelling in such places. Well, that is not how we are to understand the meaning of those words from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ or better still from the writings of John writing what the Savior had told him to say to the church in Pergamum. Well, a number of reasons have been suggested for why Jesus says this about Pergamum. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Where Satan dwells. Why does he say that to Pergamum? Well, like Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum was a large, important city of the Roman Empire. And because of the size of the city, it had a very strong concentration of idolatry and false religion. There were four prominent cults that had their headquarters in Pergamum. There were people who worshipped the god Zeus, the god of the sky and the weather. There are others who worshipped Athena, the goddess of war and victory. Others worshipped Dionysus, the god of fruitfulness and vegetation. And others who worshipped Asclepius, the god of medicine and healing. Pergamum attracted people from all over the world of that day who were seeking healing at the shrine and the temple of Asclepius. And some have thought that this shrine is behind uh, the Lord Jesus Christ's reference to uh, Pergamum as Satan's throne. And the reason being that uh, uh, the, the, the false god, the idol Asclepius, had a symbol. And the symbol for this god was a coiled serpent or a coiled snake that you see in many medical symbols. The Health Practitioners Association of Zambia uses that as a symbol. Some hospitals use that as a symbol. You see it on ambulances. The symbol of the serpent, which was the symbol, the symbol of Asclepius or Asclepios, the god of healing, according to Greek mysticism and mythical beliefs uh, that were prominent in Rome during those days. So what therefore it means is that this city, Pergamum, was a center of Caesar worship. And they had even erected a temple in honor of Caesar. And the confession of the idolaters of the city was to say, Caesar is Lord. And whoever it is that did not acknowledge and confess that truth as they believed it to be, 
lost his life. And so the believers in Pergamum knew too well that Caesar was not Lord. It is Christ alone who is Lord. And many were martyred. And one of them is mentioned here is Antipas. Could it be that he was brought to a place where he needed to renounce his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? And instead confess uh, that Caesar is Lord and he refused to do so. And that cost him his life. It is made very, very clear as to the reason why he was killed. Let us go back to chapter 2. And we are told there in Verse 13, Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells, my faithful witness, a matter of the faith, he knew who the Lord Jesus Christ was to him. And he understood very well that nothing would take the place of the Lord Jesus Christ. It didn't matter what was threatened against him. He would not renounce his faith. And for that, he paid the high price of martyrdom. And so it is in that kind of pagan environment that these believers in Pergamum held fast the name of Christ, held fast their testimony and their loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ and refused to deny the Christian faith. To deny the faith in the face of death would be to declare that one believes that life in the here and the now is better than the Lord Jesus Christ. To deny the faith is to say that life here is better than the promises that the Lord Jesus Christ makes to these people. But to hold on to Jesus' name, to hold on to the faith we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and not denying the faith even when Antipas was killed for his faith among them, the Christians in Pergamum were declaring that Jesus is better than this life. Whatever it is, that we are to face as God's people. Whatever the cost we have to pay for being children of God, it doesn't matter what in the estimation of the world that is to us. Whether we are offered riches, whether we are spared from death, whatever it is that seems to be appealing to our human eyes, it cannot be compared to having the Lord Jesus Christ and being ready to die for Him and on account of Him. That is commendable. 
that is faithfulness as far as loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ is concerned. But sadly, with the passage of time, the church in Pergamum became guilty became guilty of compromising with the world by failing to hate sin and its corrupting influences. With the passage of time, Christians in Pergamum were eager to follow the ways of the world. Christians in Pergamum did not consider it such a big deal and a bother To have lives that were indistinguishable from the lives of the people of their city. In Ephesus, the church had rooted out heretics. Is that not what we were told when we were considering uh, the letter to the church in Ephesus? He says to them, You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them false. So they were able to see error. They were able to examine every teaching that uh, was prevalent there. Even the teachings of the Nicolaitans and their works were prominent in Ephesus. But Ephesus rejected them. You hate, verse 6, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. The problem with Ephesus is that their love for Christ had grown cold, had declined. But when we come to Pergamum, heretics were being tolerated in the name of love. The church doctrinal purity and spirituality were on the decline. Her moral power was broken as she gave in to the worldly spirit of compromise. And the letter to Smena reveals that the church is in the world, but refuses to be affected by the world. The letter to Pergamum reveals that the world has come into the church. And the church does not feel uncomfortable. They allowed worldliness to take its roots amongst them. Who are we? How does the Lord define us? He says in Matthew chapter 5 that we are called to be the light of the world. We are called to be the salt of the earth. Therefore, as believers, we are to invade society. We are to influence it for good. We are to call men and women, boys and girls, to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to preserve society and to be an oasis of spiritual refreshment and satisfaction, supplying living water to those who are in the desert of dryness and despair on account of their sin. That's our role as God's people. 
But isn't it sad and destructive to their own testimony and to who they were and the disgrace to the Lord Jesus Christ when the church allows the teachings and influences of an evil society and culture around them to be the defining characteristic of who they are themselves. That was the problem. That was what the Lord Jesus Christ could not stand about Pergamum. And he does not remain quiet about it. Unfortunately, many churches apparently do this. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself makes it clear that the love of many will grow cold as we draw closer to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the standards that identified churches before will begin to decline. The lofty standards of holiness and godliness and the intolerance to sin is something that can creep into the church and cripple the church and its testimony. It happened to Pergamum. It can so easily happen to any church, including ourselves. Friends, we cannot be used of God in the world if we allow ourselves to be conformed to the world. And if we are no different in the way that we think, in the way that we dress, in the way that we act, in the way that we believe, instead of confronting and challenging and changing the world, it would be tragic for the church to compromise and conform to the ways of the world. And that is what happened to Pergamum. I want us to see how the Lord Jesus Christ introduces himself to Pergamum in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Remember that what we said in the introduction way back that uh, when we read chapter 1 and the description that John the Apostle gave to the one that he saw whose sight made him fall to the ground as if he had fainted and he begins to describe who he saw and what he saw the things that he mentions one aspect of what he saw in chapter 1 is how the Lord introduces himself to these different churches. Look at chapter 1 and verse 16. Chapter 1 and verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. A 
And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. What John saw in verse 16 and what he describes concerning what he saw, now that is what the Lord takes up and introduces himself to the angel of the church in Pergamum as the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. We will be told later on in chapter 19 when John saw the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory and in chapter 19 verse 15 that from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. So from from the language of the sword which is the language of, of power and judgment, we know that this sharp two-edged sword is an image of judgment. That the Lord Jesus Christ is coming in judgment, not only against the unrepentant in the church in Pergamum, but against the ungodly of the city of Pergamum, who were forcing these believers and putting pressure on them to renounce their faith. And he says, there will come a time when I will deal with them. So John's audience knows that Rome holds the sword of judgment. And that sword of judgment instilled fear in them. More so when one of them probably became a victim of that sword. For his faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. But then the Lord addresses them in the midst of of all that was oppressive and in the midst of all the fear that they may have had. When will the sword strike again? He says to them that the authority over life and death does not lie with the Roman Empire. The authority lies with me. With a two-edged sword. And I can strike down idolatry any moment. I can come in judgment any moment. And to live in a place where Satan had made that to be his dwelling place. To, To live in a place... To be a Christian in a place where the devil had made that to be his headquarters, so to say, of idolatry and idol worship. And to be in a place where refusal to conform to the religion and culture of the day will result in death. You you can imagine the sense of fear that may have come upon these believers. Especially when one of them was even killed. And Jesus says to them, do not fear their souls. Do not be scared of them. I carry, I bear, from my mouth comes a two-edged sword. And it is sharp. And no one can withstand my 
judgment. Whose judgment do we fear? Whose judgment do you fear as you are seated here this morning? Do you fear those that can kill the body and can do no harm to the soul? Or do you fear the one who can kill both body and soul before whom we will all stand on that day of judgment and give an account of how we lived here below? And receive our rewards for the good things that we we have done and, and receive the judgment and the punishment of God for all that we did in the body. Whose judgment do we fear? Antipas did not fear the sword of man. And he was ready to lay down his life. Because he considered the one who had called him and saved him to be of greater value than anyone or anything else. He feared the Lord Jesus Christ. Whose judgment do you fear? Well, that is the Lord's self-introduction, which was meant to encourage them and to give them a sense of Christian courage and fortitude in the midst of the persecution they were facing. We come secondly to the condemnation. The condemnation, verse 14. But I have a few things against you. I have a few things against you. The few things that the Lord Jesus Christ is mentioning here turn out to be two things, both of which have to do with some within the church who held two different forms of false teaching. On one hand, there were those who held to the teaching of Balaam, And on the other hand, those who held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We cannot identify with any precise and exact detail what these two teachings were all about. But commentators have have tried to reconstruct for us what could have been behind these two forms of teaching. And though we cannot with uh, any degree of certainty say, ah, this is what it is, uh, there is something that seems to be pointing to what uh, is being communicated to us here. Let's begin with the teaching of Bela in verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexuality, sexual immorality rather. Now the story that is... Uh, 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 being cited here is a familiar story that we find in the Old Testament book of uh, Numbers. Perhaps uh, uh, what is being referenced here is Numbers chapter 25, verse 1 to 2, where the children of Israel, the men in Israel, had sexual relations with the Moabite women who then invited them to sacrifice to their gods. 
And they ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before their gods. So there, there is a connection there. So in this matter, perhaps, and with a, a bit more detail that will be given uh, uh, when we come to the letter to the church in Thyatira, it is idolatry and immorality that were at the center stage of whatever teachings uh, that are described as the teachings of Balaam. There was a compromise. There was a, a slackening in their definition of idolatry. There was a slackening in the definition of purity with regard to their sexuality. And they opened the door wide and accommodated what they should have frowned upon and detested. But they, could, they did not denounce. The teaching of the Nicolaitans, the first time we saw that was in chapter 2 and verse 6, in the letter to the church in Ephesus. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, here are two churches geographically adjacent to one another, near to one another, living within a similar geographical area, they were so close to one another. One hated the Nicolaitans, their teachings and their works and their deeds. And the other church, Pergamum, took a totally different perspective with regards to the false teaching of the Nicolaitans. They in, uh, accommodated it. And this is what the Lord is against. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Where are they? They are right there in your midst in the church. The believers in Ephesus are praised for rejecting the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Those, the, 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 the ones in Pergamum are condemned for accommodating the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And it is quite clear from what is recorded in these verses that the two groups within the ranks of the church were promoting serious doctrinal error, if not heresy, and serious moral failure and error. So in the area of doctrinal purity, the church is found wanting. In the area of morality, the church is found wanting. So these heretical groups are not only promoting compromise with the world, but they are seeking to bring the world into the church. And that, the Lord makes it very clear. You have some there, not in the city, but in the church, some who hold the teaching of Balaam. Some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You have opened the door wide to compromise in truth 
You have opened the door wide and entertained immorality within the church and you do not frown against it. Well, how does that apply to us? How does that condemnation of the Lord Jesus Christ against these two uh, uh, groups and their influence, their sinister influence, and how they had penetrated even within the rank and file of the church? What must we learn from this? Well, very quickly then, uh, let me uh, draw four points of application very, very quickly within the time that we have. Number one is that we need to know and we need to beware of the dangers of worldliness. We need to know and beware of the dangers of worldliness. And it is true that every place, every city, every nation as its own forms of worldliness that exert pressure on believers. Every nation, every city, everywhere you go, there are certain things that are culturally acceptable that exert a tremendous pressure on God's people. For the Believers in Pergamum, it was idolatry, which was everywhere, spread everywhere you turn. There is some shrine, there is some temple, there is something dedicated to one of their idols. And soon enough, that began to have its pressure on them. First of all, it was the political pressure. Conform or else you are gone. What will you say? Christ is Lord or Caesar is Lord? Everywhere you go. This is not just at the higher level of of a nation or or a city. It's also at the level of, of children, as, as, as pupils, as students in college, as students in university. There are certain sins that you were never exposed to when you lived at home. But the moment you stepped out and went into boarding school, the moment you stepped out and went to college, went to university, and you discovered that there are certain behaviors that you never suspected even existed among people of your age. And so worldliness begins to have its toll and its influence and its pressure on you. And, and, And some people call it peer pressure. That's the culture that you have found there. That's the mode of life that you have found there. Will you conform? Will you compromise? Or you will put your foot down and say, I will not participate with them in that kind of behavior. Those who are like Antipas will stand firm. But those who are weak, because they start calling them names, but born again, but 
a Christian fanatic and all kinds of names to ridicule your faith. They are weakening you and before you know it. The Bible has remained unopened for weeks and months. And you convince yourself, well, no harm. Let me just follow them. I will not participate in what they are doing, but I will be in their company. Before you know it, you are doing exactly what they are doing. You have lost your saltiness. You have lost your ability to diffuse light in the darkened world. Someone gives an appropriate illustration in this way. That when a ship is at sea, this is where it was designed to be. In the water. That's where it must be. You never see a ship uh, cruising on, uh, on Great East Road uh, or, or Great North Road. No, it's supposed to be in the water. But, but once water starts to get into the ship and no action is taken, it's only a matter of time before the ship sinks. Although the ship is meant to be in the water, the water is not meant to be in the ship. As Christians, we are meant to be in the world, but the world is not to be in us. The world is not to be in the church. The church in Pergamum had sailed through troubled waters and withstood many storms, but through lack of diligence, its how had been perforated and she was beginning to take in water. The world was creeping in and the world was infecting it and the world was killing its testimony. The second thing that we need to learn from here is that Jesus knows all about our temptations. He knows about our temptations even before they occur, even before they emerge. He says to them, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Essentially saying what it means for you to live there. And the pressures that you are subjected to on a daily basis. The things that can weaken your faith. I know you are surrounded by the powers of darkness. I know you are in the midst of paganism and superstition. And I know when you refuse to say Caesar is Lord what they will do to you. Our temptations do not catch him by surprise. Because remember, he holds the seven stars in his hands and walks among the seven candlesticks, amongst his people. He knows even the temptations that would so easily entangle us. He knows. In whatever place and environment we find ourselves, he knows what will bring about our persecution. And if the Lord of life knows where every one of us lives, 
We ought to be comforted by the fact that there is nothing that ever happens that is catches him by surprise. He knows all the circumstances of our lives. And therefore, if we put our confidence, our trust in him, and know that there is no temptation that has overtaken us that is not common to humanity, when our confidence in is in him, he will always provide a way out of temptation. And sometimes a way out as it was for Antipas is to call us home to glory. To call us home to glory. Thirdly, it is possible for a believer to remain faithful even unto death in the midst of a wicked environment. It is possible. Antipas remained faithful. And so we, we can never give excuses of all because I was surrounded by the heathen all the time. All my workmates, there was no one who was a Christian and their conversations were always so unhealthy, so ungodly. And with time, my resolve to withstand the pressure was weakened. Oh, I couldn't, I didn't know that they had put something in my drink. I drank and I felt dizzy. And they started laughing because they had put whiskey in my bottle of juice. These are the things that happen to us when we are surrounded by the ungodly. But the Lord is saying, those who are faithful will stand those tests because they know that the Lord Jesus Christ is with them even in a wicked environment. The Lord says that a certain believer named Antipas was a shining testimony of faithfulness, even to the point of suffering death as a matter of witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have not been brought to the point of temptation where it has meant life or death. Antipas stood the test. Will we in the wicked environment in which we live. Will we as a nation, will we as God's people, will we as churches? I mean, look at the West. How quickly they have changed. The things that they preached against, the things that they spoke against just a few years ago when they brought the gospel to Africa. Today they are saying those things were a bit narrow-minded and bigotry. And so we can allow you to marry a fellow woman, to marry a fellow man, and we will celebrate your marriage right within the church, and we will not censure you. That's what the Church of England has done. And it would only get worse. 
but it's possible for true believers to remain faithful in a wicked environment. And then fourthly, when Satan fails to physically destroy the church by direct assault, he uses subversive weapons to sneak into the church. Force teaching and moral compromise are some of the weapons that he uses. He masquerades as an angel of light and he sneaks in and he allows our guards down and we begin to embrace what previously we renounced and rejected. That's what he did in Pergamum. And then finally, we will not compromise the truth. And we must never compromise the truth by taking away the offense from the gospel. We must never take away the offense of the gospel. There always will be the time when the truth of the gospel will offend the unbeliever. And if they get offended, that is what the gospel is intended to do. It's a sweet aroma that leads to salvation to one and to another. It is the smell of death. What is the gospel to you? You don't have to get upset when the gospel says you are a sinner that needs to repent. The hostile culture of their days, the days in which they lived, is the hostile culture of our own days. And it may tempt us to minimize the areas in which our faith may offend the sinners. We minimize the areas in which we want to sound politically correct and not to chase away and not to make people go away. The gospel will remain the gospel. It is to confront sinners with the truth. The truth of Christ as Savior. The truth of the judgment when they reject the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth that there is one from whose mouth comes a two-edged sword with whom they will have to do at the final day of judgment. It's the truth that offends, but it's the truth that makes the gospel true. On which side are you? On the side that believes that the gospel is good news and bad news, or on the side that says, no, everything has to be good, you don't have to offend me, you have to be very kind to me and speak in a way that will make coming to church attractive and winsome. Know that. We must not do. That is what the church in Pergamum failed to do. And may we never fall into the same trap. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts. Amen. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you that in unmasking the weaknesses of these seven churches, we see our own areas of weakness. And in summoning them unto repentance, you are equally speaking to us several generations after them that should these weaknesses be in us and among us that we must renounce them, repent and receive the promises that are given from the lips of our Savior. Lord, if there is one who has not escaped from the wrath of God and the judgment to come, May you speak to them this morning and may you awaken them, O Lord, 
to the danger, the sinister, manipulative, and insidious and subversive elements of the devil's workings in their lives. That they may turn around and come to the safety and the security of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.